Hello and welcome to Inside Education with me, Sean Delaney. Inside Education is your weekly podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator myself and the author of a book about teaching called Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have. You can download almost 400 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. Follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. You can email me to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. This week's guest is someone I've wanted to interview for many years. I first heard him as a guest when he spoke on The Open Mind, a radio program about education that was presented and produced by John Quinn. When I was a young teacher, Alfie Cohen's views on homework, standardised testing and rewards challenged my views of teaching. But even though Alfie Cohn has been writing and speaking about these topics for over three decades, little seems to have changed in our schools. Indeed, his ideas still seem as compelling and as controversial today as they were when I first heard him speaking to John Quinn. Alfie Cohn lives in the Boston area and his books include Punished by Rewards, The Trouble with Gold Stars, Incentive Plans, A's and Other Bribes, The Homework Myth, Why Our Kids Get Too Much of a Bad Thing, and The Case Against Standardised Testing, Raising the Scores, Ruining the Schools. You'll like this week's podcast if you're interested in education that encourages students to think deeply. If you question the role of homework for students, if you question the role of standardised testing in our schools, and if you wonder about the kinds of punishments and rewards that are part of many schools, this programme is for you. When I spoke to Alfie Cohn on Skype, I first noted that he's a critic of many aspects of schooling, such as homework, testing, punishment and rewards. So given that, I asked him what, in his view, schools do well. That depends on the school and more particularly on the teacher within the school. Uh, there are many things that many teachers do well, which is to preserve and nourish the curiosity that children come in with and help them to collaborate with other students in order to ask and answer questions that help them to understand the world. The more a teacher is committed to helping kids preserve their curiosity to think deeply about questions that matter, the more likely those teachers and schools are to challenge the traditional policies and practices, such as the ones you've named, that get in the way. If it's so easy then, if it's just a matter of nurturing curiosity and and promoting that in school, why isn't that happening more widely in, in our schools, that it's a more isolated phenomenon? Well, I didn't mean to indicate that it is easy. I don't argue that teachers should just get out of the way and let kids explore the world as they see fit, when they see fit. This is not a laissez-faire approach. Progressive education requires far more talent and uh, expertise on the part of educators than doing nothing on the one hand or then dictating to kids what they must do, uh, using punishments and rewards to control them, and falling back on on, uh, traditional practices uh, like quizzes and tests, marks, 
and grades, lectures and worksheets and homework and so on. The trick is to facilitate and deepen kids' questions, to participate with them in an exploration of ideas. So merely to conceive of education that way takes imagination and skill, since so many of us have been led to believe that students are just passive receptacles into which knowledge should be poured. And then once you get beyond that conception, knowing when to step in, when to hold back, when to talk, when to ask, when to say nothing, when to help kids as a group, when as individuals, and when to facilitate collaboration in small groups, how to help them see beyond the question of mere factual knowledge, to get underneath and understand ideas from the inside out. All of this is very, very difficult. That's why there's this temptation to fall back on the easy kind of traditional teaching where you just tell kids to read this chapter and answer the even-numbered questions at the end, and you just have to stay a chapter ahead of the kids. So how do some teachers then manage to book the tradition and to encourage the kind of imagination and skill and exploration of ideas that you're talking about? Because it does seem to be more the exception rather than the rule. Yes, yes, it does. Well, I, I don't know. There are probably many life stories among teachers that lead to different routes to getting to this place. If you're asking me how a teacher ends up being terrific, I think there are many different stories, and I've certainly spoken to many, many teachers over the course of my career, learning how they came to be so much better than I did and, and when I was in the classroom. And there are different ways they come about it. Some, some seem to have this native gift for it. Some were lucky enough to have one or more extremely talented mentors. Some read books and articles and watched videos that helped them understand, among other things, that great teaching is about you know, less of us and more of them. Uh, it's about less talking and more asking. Uh, it's about uh, deep thinking. Uh, and you also have to, in addition to knowing a lot about pedagogy, which is the art of teaching, you also have to know your subject matter extremely well. That's true even if you're teaching, say, primary school maths. You have to really understand the relationship uh, between sets of numbers to understand what equivalence means or ratios in order to help children come at that from nothing. And then another characteristic I find of really extraordinary teachers is they don't have to be the boss. The more a teacher feels that need to be in control of the classroom, perhaps because of what's going on in his or her own life, feeling powerless, but not always, but sometimes that explains it. The more a teacher feels the need to get kids to do whatever they're told, the less likely that is to be a place of robust learning. Because children learn um, how to make good decisions by making decisions not by following directions. 
And so that per set of personal characteristics of being willing to share authority with the children themselves, as well as expertise in the subject matter and a, and a gift for understanding how learning happens, all of these help some teachers to, you know, rise above and be the kind of the kind of instructors where you watch their classrooms and say, wow, I wish my own kids could be there. And was there a particular book or writer that you read that influenced your thinking about education? Oh, many. Uh, too many to list. Uh, although, in effect, I do list them in the bibliographies of my own books. So anyone who takes a look at the books I've written on this on these topics, including my book, The Schools Our Children Deserve, will find hundreds of um, of reference sources, some of them researchers in education, but others of them classroom teachers who have written about the topic and have influenced me. So there have been many, many I've been happy to steal from along the way. And was there anyone in particular that got you started on this route? Because you've, you, you've been, this, this is not something that you've come to recently. You've been working on this a long time. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, I had a, a professor at um, at university who was not a professor of education, but he was someone who was not affiliated with any one department. His specialty was interdisciplinary studies of the human condition. And what I learned from him was that the best kind of learning, regardless of whether you're at university or you're eight years old, is to start with the question and then draw from whatever fields are useful for exploring that question, rather than limiting yourself just to literature or philosophy or chemistry or history or whatever, um, and the methods of that particular discipline. And then as I began to read about education, I was bowled over by the greats, you know, including John Dewey and Jean Piaget um, and many of their followers and students, um, many of whose names I think may not be necessarily uh, familiar to to listeners, only to those who are in the field. And then uh, a great many others in the, in the related fields of educational psychology and motivational psychology. For example, the work of researchers in the United States like Ed DC and Richard Ryan and their students and colleagues around the world who are part of a movement called self-determination theory, which helped me to understand that when you use rewards of any kind, including praise and positive reinforcement or punishment, even if you call it by another name, that gets you only mindless compliance in the short term while actively undermining excellence and interest in the long run. Rewards and punishments are two sides of the same coin. They're both ways of doing things to children, whereas the way to help them learn and enjoy learning is to work with them. So I incorporated some of the work from those psychologists along with what I had already learned from many educators uh, to try to put that together. Um, and I hope to perhaps add a bit of my own spin in figuring out how that should play out in real classrooms. And you've certainly done that. I mean, one of the the papers you've written and you've you've, you've uh, it's also in your books is you have a difficulty with teachers even saying something like "good job" to children. 
And I mean, that seems like just a throwaway remark, but you actually think that can be damaging. Oh, it's not what I think that matters. It's what many, many studies have found. That's just a verbal doggy biscuit. It's just a different (laughs) version of a patronizing pat on the head, which is often, very often, a means of controlling kids, even though it's sugar-coated control. It's still a way of doing things to them. Now, there's different, it's a gray area because there are ways of expressing enthusiasm alongside children that doesn't steal their authority and autonomy. But for the most part, it's used as a deliberate way to manipulate children by saying good job or words or giving them uh, stickers or stars or extra treats or, you know, making that conditional on what they've done and how well they've done is not a way of encouraging, it's a way of controlling. And on some level, even very young children figure that out and often will act out more after they've been praised or dig in their heels because they don't like being controlled. So even though some people who praise children do so with the best of motives, just to express their own spontaneous excitement or enthusiasm, not to manipulate the children's future behavior. What matters is not what you're doing, your own behavior as the adult. And it's, it's, it's not even so much why you're doing it, though that matters. And it matters a lot more than what you're doing. What, what really counts is how the child experiences it. And if the child feels controlled, or the child learns the reason to do X is to get the adult to say, good job, nice going, well done, then you have devalued the thing the child had to do. So, for example, research finds that children who are frequently praised are less generous than their peers less likely to help and share, particularly if they were praised for being generous. Similarly, children who are given good marks in school tend to think less deeply and to become less interested in learning, not only because it's controlling, but because the message has been sent to them that learning is just a means to an end. It's just the tedious prerequisite to getting the gold star or the pat on the head. That's why the best teachers don't train children as if they were pets. They would no more use a reward than they would use a punishment. They would figure out ways to, as I say, work with children rather than using bribes and threats to do things to them. So is there a way then that a teacher can respond to a piece of work done by a child in a way that respects the child's autonomy? Sure. Uh, One thing that a teacher can do is just to observe. Sometimes you don't need to say anything. And, And if that feels odd, that just proves how much we need to say it, even when they really don't need to hear it. So one possibility is just to shut up. Second, um, One can simply describe what a child has done. I notice that you're starting more of these uh, essays with short sentences rather than longer ones. I notice with your drawings that you're using, you're drawing toes 
on these animals now. I noticed that you shared some of your your snack with your friend. This is not praise. It's not. Um, it's not judging. That's right. Exactly. But the important thing is to realize that praise is judging, and children don't flourish. They don't learn social skills. They don't learn moral dispositions. They don't learn thinking skills by being judged. And a positive judgment ultimately is not much better than a negative one. The third thing that adults can do is simply is to ask questions. After I noticed X, you might ask a child, "How did you figure that out?" or "Why did you do that?" and really listen for the answer and don't ask the kind of question where you already know the answer. That helps the child to reflect on what she's done rather than to try to get that reaction from you again so your approval becomes the point. It's no secret that you have a very strong stance on homework and that you're against it. And I'm just wondering, though, that if a school decides to implement a no homework policy, what kind of issues are at stake? What do they need to think about in order to successfully implement a no homework policy? They need to bring parents in on the process so that um, they don't end up being blindsided by opposition from parents who falsely believe that they're putting their children's academic achievement at risk. It needs to be like any major change, getting rid of grades or marks, moving away from tests and toward more authentic forms of assessment, moving away from traditional reward and punishment discipline. This challenges the way most of us were, were taught and even sometimes raised. And so it's important to share the research, to anticipate and respond to the questions so that parents ultimately will say, by God, it, it didn't work all that well now that you mention it. And I'm interested in learning how my child can get better than I got. So in the case of homework, for example, you start out with just what the facts say, what the research on. We have a hundred years of research on homework. And to the best of my knowledge, no controlled scientific study has ever found any benefit to any kind of homework before children are in high school. If a school is making children work what amounts to a second shift of academics when they get home from school and the child is only 12, or heaven help us, six, that is educational malpractice. No study, no data support that practice. And even in high school, newer, better studies are casting doubt on whether it's beneficial at all, much less necessary. The downside should take about 10 minutes to review because we all know this, many of us as parents, most children hate most homework. It causes frustration and exhaustion, family conflict, less excitement about learning, less time for kids to do things that give them pleasure. We need to focus on that and then realize the surprising news, there is no pro to balance the con. There's no advantage to compensate for the manifest disadvantages of homework. Now, there are other, some schools give other reasons too for getting rid of homework. For example, 
why in the heck should schools presume to decide what happens during family time? Shouldn't that be for families to decide? Or many schools say, yes, of course we want kids to develop academically or more importantly, intellectually. That's not the same thing. We've been doing that with them for you know six hours or whatever a day. We also want kids to develop and flourish socially, physically, artistically, emotionally. You know, the idea of homework suggests that academics is all that matters. Let's put it in perspective. And there are still other schools that have gotten rid of homework because of social inequities and how the practice of homework tends to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. So there's many, many different reasons to do it. But schools can bring parents in on that process so that they realize, wow, why weren't you getting rid of homework before? Could the problem with the lack of research evidence for any benefits of homework, and I can't can't disagree with you there, could the reason for that be that homework, that it's the wrong kind of homework, that maybe there are better types of homework that could be given, such as some of the things you're talking about, you know, creative work, uh, physical activity, artistic work. And, and is it that just that it's the academic homework that's the problem or is it homework full stop? Well, that's a that's a fair question. And I think I would answer on two levels. One, I believe you're right that there are gradations there are differences. Some kind of homework is definitely not just pointless, but damaging to intellectual growth. Worksheets, where kids have to just fill in blanks, for example, or cram forgettable facts into short-term memory to do well on an exam, you know, or just read a corporate written textbook. That's dreadful stuff. There are certainly more thoughtful kinds of homework that involve projects thinking, pulling ideas together. The best kind of learning also usually involves collaboration. It's not just done alone, and that's kind of hard to do when kids go home. But yes, some homework is a little more thoughtful than others. But is that sufficient reason to make kids work a second shift after school? I don't think so. I certainly haven't seen any research that says if you do this kind of homework, kids tend to benefit intellectually. I certainly haven't seen any evidence that says if you give better kinds of homework, kids will be more excited about learning than if they had none at all. And ultimately, excitement is what drives excellence. And then the other arguments that I tossed out about inequity, about family time being for families to decide, about other kinds of non-academic growth, all of those suggest that the problem is not just with how much homework or even what kind of homework, the problem is homework itself. And what about the argument that it might be useful applying yourself for a certain period of time every day might be useful in in developing independent working habits? Yes, that's one chapter of my book, The Homework Myth, the so-called non-academic justifications for homework. And I made a thorough, exhaustive search of the research literature And I can summarize my long process of of, of searching in one sentence. No research supports that hypothesis. Kids, to whatever extent applying yourself on various academic tasks can be beneficial, it's enough to do it during school. No research shows that kids become more self-disciplined, more independent, 
or acquire any of the other non-academic goals that we talk about developing better study skills. No study has ever found that that happens with kids who are given homework as opposed to those who aren't given homework. Another area that you are highly critical of in schools is the area of testing, but particularly standardized testing. And I think that one of the justifications, which maybe it's not always spoken about, but one of the justifications for standardized testing is to hold schools and teachers accountable to taxpayers. So if you don't have standardized tests, how do you hold schools accountable and teachers accountable to taxpayers? Well, first, we have to take apart that word accountability. If the idea is that taxpayers and I would add parents and citizens, others in general, it's not all a financial transaction, at least I hope it isn't. But if we want to make sure that um, everybody in a community wants to know that the schools are good, that makes sense. But the word accountability is often used as a bludgeon. It's often used as a as a code word or a euphemism for um, obey us or you will suffer. And that's when we hold children accountable for something we mean will make you will make you unhappy on purpose if you fail to live up to our expectations. And in fact, in many countries, there is that kind of top down power based approach used to control teachers. Uh, sadly and ironically, sometimes the way the teachers then turn around and do that to children. But let's assume you mean the good kind of accountability. In that case, you learn nothing of value about the quality of teaching and learning as a result of any kind of standardized exam. Again, as with homework, some exams are worse than others. The worst kind are multiple choice where you can't explain, let alone generate a response. Um, multiple choice exams exist to trick kids who, many of whom understand the idea into picking the wrong answer. The worst kind of exams are timed. You have 45 minutes to complete this section where you're not tapping thoughtfulness, you're just tapping speed. The worst kinds of exams are given to younger children where research consistently shows it gives you misleading information about what they know because a lot of it is just tricky in terms of doing the format or even sitting still for that long. The worst kinds of exams are those that are done with high stakes attached. So there's pressure on people to prepare kids for the tests. So basically what standardized exams measure are two things. First, how much time has been taken away from meaningful learning to make kids good at the discrete skill of test taking. And second, how large the houses are near the school. The second is, of course, <laughs> a sort of a flip way of saying that, and we know this from many, many studies cross-culturally, that most of the differences between one area and another area on test scores are a function just of socioeconomic status. If you show me what the average test scores are in an Irish school or community, and I will predict what the average income is and vice versa. So it's a terrible measure. And sadly, these standardized uh, exams end up making 
mediocre teaching appear successful because the teachers who are able to raise scores on these inherently flawed tests are often not very good teachers. And conversely, teachers who are extraordinary, who just make your jaw drop because of the talent they have, the talent we were speaking of a few minutes ago in helping kids to understand and become excited about ideas, those teachers often don't raise test scores beyond what you would expect of kids in that demographic because they're too busy with learning, which pulls in one direction as opposed to raising scores on these tests on the other. Now, there are shelves in libraries on education full of books devoted to your specific question of, if not standardized exams, then what? And they usually fall under the umbrella of what are called authentic assessments, where basically you are tapping into periodically the real projects that kids are doing over time, sampling those so you don't have to look at every kid or every classroom to get a feel for what's happening in this school to make sure that the learning is deep, that it's, that it's um, rich, that kids are understanding ideas without ever stopping the learning to say, now take everything off your desks, you're gonna take a standardized exam. The more you hear corporate executives and politicians and journalists say, well, you need standardized exams if you wanna hold schools accountable, the less those people know about learning and about assessing learning, because there's a huge field about how you can do that kind of assessment in a way that is not intrusive and whose results are not misleading as, as standardized exams are. So it doesn't mean we don't care how good the teachers are. It doesn't mean we can all just forget about the quality of, of education. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm suggesting we do it in a way that's not damaging and that is, in fact, more informative, which requires not the improvement, but the elimination of standardized tests. Standardized tests, by the way, the whole idea of standardization, meaning that all the students in a given country or area or throughout the world even are answering the same questions under the same conditions. The only reason you would need to standardize it across domains is if you were not really interested in the quality of learning you were interested in creating a contest in sorting schools or children into winners and losers. Standardization is about unnecessary competition so that this school or town or country can claim, we're number one, as if, as if learning were an athletic contest. If you're not interested in winning, you're interested in learning, then you don't have to standardize the ways by which you evaluate the quality of the learning. You, you don't write only for teachers. You've also written for parents. Yes. How would you see the difference between the role of a teacher and the role of a parent? Well, there's obviously overlap, but, you know, there's uh, less exclusive concern with academic development on the part of parents and far more concern with the child's holistic self, well-being social, moral development, emotional connection, ultimate uh, commitment to the kind of person that the, that the child grows into. As one example, I wrote a book called Unconditional Parenting, 
which is about what replaces or ought to replace rewards and punishments. And part of what helps kids to become good people is by never making our affection and approval and attention contingent on, that is dependent on, kids pleasing us or impressing us. Kids need to know not merely that we love them, but that they never have to earn our love. Then I spun off an article called Unconditional Teaching, where I said, well, that's somewhat true even in the classroom, where the best teachers are those who care about their kids, all kids, and it's they don't nothing the kids don't have to earn that. But it's so much more important in the case of parents, even though there's similarity in the basic in the basic approach. By the way, one thing they have in common uh, presents itself when I do workshops for parents and teachers. I begin in, in both cases, typically by asking, what are your long-term goals for your kids? Um, how would you like your kids to turn out uh, in the long run? And it's really interesting to look at the overlap across areas, across uh, demographics, but also across the bridge that divides home from school. And lots of adults, whether they're talking about their own children or about their students, uh, answer in the same kind of ways. I want, I'd like my kids to be happy, ethical, caring and compassionate, but also independent and self-reliant, curious, lifelong learners, uh, and so on. And thus, what I do for a living in my books and articles and my lectures and workshops is basically to say to parents and teachers, you say you want this, so why are you doing that? <laughs> given that the research shows that gets in the way of what you yourself care about, ultimately. Finally, which of your books, and you've written a wide range of them, which of your books are you most proud of? Oh, that's like asking me which of my two children I prefer. I don't think I can name just one. I, I'm, I'm pleased with, with a number of them, and yet at the same time, you know, I, of course, you always want to to perfect them. So if somebody asks me which of my books, you know, they should they should get, which I is of course of course a question that I treasure uh, and appreciate. I I I don't just pick one. I say it depends what you're interested in. If you're most interested in parenting, I would suggest the book Unconditional Parenting. Uh, if you're interested in education, there's a whole bunch. Uh, there's one called Punished by Rewards, which is about not only parenting and education, but also about the workplace. Uh, there's one called The Schools Our Children Deserve, which is about education more generally. And then there are specific books about homework, about testing, uh, about discipline, and so on. So anyone who's interested, I would invite them to take a look at my website, Alfie, A-L-F-I-E, Cone, K-O-H-N, dot org. And that has information about my uh, books and a couple of DVDs, and then also has hundreds of articles that are free for the taking. And Alfie Cohn's website is a treasure trove of interesting material about the kinds of topics we discussed on the podcast today. Alfie Cohn writes and lectures on the topics of education, parenting and human behaviour. I want to thank him for his time in recording today's podcast. That's all for this week's Inside Education. To listen to or download this episode or almost 400 previous episodes, you can go to seandelaney.com and click on Podcasts.
If you enjoyed the episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review of the podcast wherever you download your podcasts from. It really means a lot when you do that. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, has chapters on homework and differentiated instruction. You can borrow it from your local library or get it from any online bookstore. You can write to me by email to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. Until the same time next week, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.